On a wintry morning in February of 1944, the police came knocking at a girl named Corey's house. And immediately, when the knocking began, several people rushed off, shuffled off to a secret compartment. And just in time, because as the secret police came through the door, they grabbed hold of Corey and began to beat her and demand an answer to her for where the Jews were hiding. And immediately, Corey lied. She said, I'm not keeping any Jews in, in these premises. As she lied, she felt the pain of her conscience of thinking that, dear Lord, I, I have just lied in your word. Your word commands not to lie. It forbids lying. And, and they shook her and they beat her and they tortured her. And they demanded to know of her where she was hiding the Jews. And Corey refused to answer. The police began to tear apart her house, going through the cupboards and the floorboards and wall to wall, seeking to find a secret compartment. Finding none, they arrested her and her family Eventually, Corey was imprisoned at the dreadful Ravensbrook Detention Center. Of course, that Corey is Corey Ten Boom, who was known for uh, her valiant effort at fighting many Jews in Holland during World War II. But it's that knocking that that story begins with that, that we find a similar ring to in our chapter here because that's basically how our chapter begins with the knocking of the secret police of the city of Jericho upon the apartment door of a prostitute named Rahab. And I want us to see this morning Rahab's deed in response to the knocking of the secret police of the city of Jericho. And the context of that deed begins with what Joshua did in verse 1. The word of God says, Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two spies secretly from Shittim, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. Now, I want us to step back from that verse 1 there and analyze that particular uh, action of Joshua in view of the context. If you go, for instance, to Joshua 1, verse 11, you'll find an interesting contextual clue. Uh, Joshua said, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, prepare provisions for yourself. For within three days you are to cross the Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. Now you go forward to chapter 3, verse 2. And there it says, at the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp. And so that's Joshua's making good on the command of chapter 1. And so we begin to ask ourselves, why is there a chapter 2 in the Bible? But why is there a chapter 2 in the Bible? After all, it would seem that it's a seamless transition to go from the end of chapter 1 to chapter 3, where you have finally Israel responding in three days to Joshua's command to make preparations for the battle. And as you think about it, there's really no good reason to conclude, or rather to include, chapter 2 in the Bible at all. And so you begin to see what is going on in chapter 2. But on the surface of it, it would seem that this is sort of a filler story, a sort of a, a dramatic interlude in between these episodes of, of the command to prepare and the actual preparation of beginning to march off to battle. 
After all, in chapter 1, uh, God has come to Joshua and commissioned Joshua and, and emphatically commanded him to be bold and courageous and to repeatedly remind him that the Lord, uh, the Lord God of heaven will be with him as he goes forth into battle. So Joshua has been commissioned, Joshua has been commanded, Joshua has been encouraged, and now we see Joshua commissioning spies. And immediately, our radar begins to go up to wonder whether Israel is headed down the same path of disobedience and calamity that they had before. You see, the sending of the spies reminds us of several things. First of all, the location from which they are sent is from uh, the area of Shittim, which is literally translated the Acacia Groves. Now, if you go back to Numbers 25, you will realize that the Acacia Groves were a very bad place for Israel, because there at the Acacia Groves, Israel engaged in cultic prostitution with the women of Moab. And so you're thinking, this is where Joshua is sending the spies from. All of a sudden, we begin to think, well, something is up here. But then when you read uh, the rest of verse 1, you find that something really seems to be going wrong, because not only are they sent from a place where Israel engaged in cultural, uh, cultic prostitution, now the spies go to the house of what? A prostitute. And immediately we're beginning to think that there's going to be all kinds of problems now that we're going to find out in chapter 2. And, and then also the sending of the spies reminds us of something else, and that is the last sending of the spies. Forty years earlier, what had happened? God had commanded Moses to send out twelve spies into the land, and the twelve spies go out, and the twelve spies come back, and they say the cities are well fortified. There's giants in the land. If we go up, surely they will prevail against us. Let's go back to Egypt. Joshua does not need to send these spies out, by the way, because there's absolutely nothing that these spies learn on this trip, besides the fact that they're shaking in their boots in Jericho. There's nothing in here that would help them in terms of strategy. In fact, the battle strategy is given by God in, in, in Joshua chapter 6. These spies don't need to go here. It's a, we need to be asking the question immediately when we start hearing all of these red lights go off. Is Why is chapter 2 here? What is God up to with this? Well, more red lights go off also as we keep working our way into the chapter here, or at least into verse 1, because not only do you have a bad location from which they are sent, not only do you have the action of sending spies out, which doesn't sound particularly good, now they land in the house of a prostitute named Rahab. And there are several things about Rahab we should think about as we're still contemplating the knocking on the door. First of all, Rahab is a Canaanite. She is a citizen of the city of Jericho. That's already a problem because she is harboring what? The enemy. As she answers this door, what confidence do those Jewish spies have that she will not disclose their cover? Not only is she a citizen of the city of Jericho, but she's a social outcast. Uh, look at verse 15, her position. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. You have to understand something about the construction of the walls of Jericho. There was an inner wall which was very thick and very heavily fortified against uh, external attacks. But in between that inner wall 
uh, there was a filler space filled with beams, and then there was an exterior outer wall as a secondary fortification against attack. And you see, the picture given here of Rahab's location where she lives is that she is on the far exterior wall. She is in a place that is vulnerable and open to attack, and she's at the farthest point of the wall, at the farthest point from the city of town, which would tell us that uh, Rahab is not particularly well-liked to receive the town in which she lives. So she's a Canaanite, she's a social outcast. By the way, she's also a prostitute. I think I've already told you that. Some people have uh, looked at this text and pious interpreters uh, trying to, uh, to save Rahab somehow have said that Rahab was merely an innkeeper because they found it unsavory that God would be talking through a prostitute. Uh, but here, clearly, this is what she is. And, and in fact, the, the text here is riddled with uh, sexual innuendo, but it never goes that far. The spies don't actually engage in sexual immorality with Rahab. I'll get into that in a moment. But clearly, this is, her, this is her vocation. So she's a Canaanite. She's a social outcast. She's a prostitute. And fourthly, she's a pagan. She is a pagan. Make no mistake about it. She, prior to this, is not a worshiper of the one true God. She is a worshiper of many gods. She is a worshiper of Baal. She is a worshiper of Asherah. She is possibly a worshiper of El. She is a worshiper of Mot. Uh, the list goes on and on. The Canaanites were polytheistic. And, and you think about this and you begin to wonder how in the world uh, did God's people get themselves in such a mess? Joshua's command was very simple. In three days we march, boys. And so uh, next thing they do is they send out spies and put them right in the middle uh, of a terribly dramatic, life-threatening situation. And it's in that situation that we stand right now as we turn to verse 2 and 3 with the knocking on the door. It said, it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. I believe that verse 3 confirms what I've already said, that she's a social outcast, because where do you go when crimes are committed? The first place the police go to find out when there's crimes committed or there's acts of treason like this, they go to people who are unsavory who live on the streets. And it's also said that, this, that there were secret agents watching her house because they say, we know that you have taken men into your house. So they're watching her. So in every way, it sort, of, it, it sort of compresses all of the focus on her and intensifies it by showing that this is a very a difficult and dramatic situation that they have found themselves entangled in. And it's here that Rahab does what is totally unexpected from an earthly perspective. Because in verse 4, she says, yeah, uh, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And then when it was time uh, for dark, they went out the gate and left and, and uh, just go pursue them. But, but what did Rahab just do there? She lied. So let's add another thing to Rahab's profile. She's a Canaanite. She's a prostitute. She's a social outcast. She's a pagan and she's a liar. 
And she commits treason here because she aids and abets the criminal and the enemy by taking them into her home and then hiding them within her home and then telling the police department that they're left, that they're gone, and she misdirects them, and so she engages in deception. So it's a lie, it's treason, and it's deception. And notice her treason here and her deception and her lie. Verse 6 amplifies her hiding. It says, she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid out in order on the roof. You know, it's interesting. The word of God, when it records events, uses an economy of words. There are so many questions which we have of the text at this point. How long had these spies been in her house? What was the extent of their conversation? What was it about they said to her that uh, immediately engaged her and, and, and prompted her, who has really no stake in it at all, to invite these men into her house, to put them up on her roof, to hide them under stocks, and then to go lie, commit treason, and deception? It's really as if, as the the way the narrative unfolds, that we we find out that that they have gone to her house, and then literally right after they're being at her house, uh, it's it's as if she had just sprinkled the flax on top of the roof and and hid the spies under this, and and then the door's knocking. And what the question you're asking is, what's going through her mind as she walks down the stairs to go open the door? Is she having second thoughts? Is she persuaded that she's doing the right thing? Is she wondering within herself? Is she having sort of an internal monologue? Am I doing the right thing by committing treason here? After all, these people are going to come into my town and they're going to kill everybody. She knows that because she has heard about the way they conduct warfare. Look at verse 10. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Now, the word there is is harem. It's the harem holy warfare concept of Deuteronomy 20. If you go back and read the episode of the uh, battle with the Amorite kings, you will see that Israel utterly slaughtered the Amorites. Because that's what God commanded. Think about this again. Is this going through her mind as as she goes to answer the door? What will they do to me? What assurances do I have that they're going to treat me kindly in my family? It's a bold move that she makes. But she goes to the door, and she lies. She misdirects the police department. And then she lets the spies down the exterior wall, tells them where to go to find safety, and forms a covenant with these spies. In the course of, I'm really just... Minutes, how long this all takes, minutes, maybe some hours. It's all on the same night. So that the passage can end up on the climactic note of verse 24. Surely the Lord has given us the land. And by the way, that's the whole point of this narrative. Now, I skipped over a lot of details because what I have to do is, uh, in, in a 45-minute sermon, I, I can only cover so much. And if I spent two minutes on each verse, that'd be 48 minutes. And uh, I have to spend more time on some verses here. That's her deed, anyway. And, and it's fascinating how the story is arranged. It's arranged in, in the form of a chiasm, which means at the very center and heart of the story is something central. 
And so you have these outer frames of the spies coming, the spies leaving, the inner frames of their arrival and escape and all that stuff. And in the center is this confession of Rahab, and that's what I want to focus on. But what's interesting here is, is you can't get to verse 24 and the intended meaning of the passage, the, the, the point that the Lord is communicating through this, without this confession here of Rahab. So let's zero in on that now so that we can see what God's word is doing here with this very interesting narrative. Uh, Verse 8, she comes back upstairs after deceiving the police. It says, before they lay down, she came up to them in the roof. And here's the beginning of her confession. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, when you're reading this for the first time, you say, how in the world does Rahab know anything about the land? She is a Canaanite. She is a pagan. She is a worshiper of false gods. She's never read a single passage in the Bible. And yet she knows one of the central promises of the covenant going back to Genesis chapter 12. Fascinating, isn't it? If you are reading this passage and you've read through the book of Genesis, you understand full well. If you've read through the book of Exodus, you know full well. If you read the first chapter of Joshua, you know full well that the land is an enormous biblical idea, an enormous biblical concept. It's what was promised to Abraham. It was to be the dwelling place of his descendants. It was to be the type of eternity and and heaven and a, and, a, and a glorified relationship with God forever and ever. You see, it's, it's, a, it's all about all kinds of enormously wonderful and important things. But if you've never read the Bible and you've never been catechized, there's no reason to know this. How does Rahab know this? Uh, who knows? As you look through chapter 2, you realize that the land is a very important idea. The land comes up in verse 1, land comes up in verse 3, land comes up in verse 9, verse 14, verse 18, and verse 24. They're saying land, 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 land. I think when you repeat the word that many times, you begin to realize the land must be something very important. But Rahab doesn't know anything about the land from biblical training, but somehow Rahab knows about the land. And she says to them, as she begins her profession of faith to these spies, I know the Lord has given you the land. This is the beginning of understanding what this story is all about. There's no reason to include this narrative in the Bible at all. The Jews know, or at least from Scripture, that God had given them the land and know they're headed to battle. After reading John Calvin, I came across a very interesting insight that began to me to seem to tie this chapter together with all of its details. Calvin commenting on verse 24 says, And although the mere promise of possessing the land ought to have been sufficient, yet the Lord is so very indulgent to their weakness that for the sake of removing all doubt, he confirms what he had promised by experience. In other words, what Calvin is arguing is that God had moved Joshua's heart 
for reasons that we can't understand, after he had been commissioned, after he had been commanded, after he had told the soldiers to get ready for battle, he moved upon Joshua's heart to send these spies out so that they would receive confirmation of the promises about the land that he had already given Israel. He had promised the land hundreds of years before. He had promised the land to Israel when they were in Egypt. He had promised the land to them while they were wandering in the wilderness. He had promised them the land as they stand on the other side of the banks of the Jordan just hours before this. Yet Israel was still standing in Shittim with all of their forces quaking in their boots, wondering whether the land would ever be there still. So God sends these spies out to Jericho. You'll confirm to the spies and through them to Israel that God had indeed given them the land and the mysterious way in which God does it makes us laugh. I mean, you stop and think about it. God used the mouth of a prostitute, a pagan prostitute, to confirm the promises of God's word to Israel. It's laughable, and you think about it, because because here is Israel with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of military troops. Here is Israel standing on the other side of the Jordan River with the promise that God is going to be with them. He is going to lead them into battle with all kinds of assurances that he will give them the victory. Here is Israel uh, with a recollection of the fact that God had led Israel out of Egypt. He had defeated Pharaoh and all of his mighty army, and it was going to be nothing to go against these Canaanites. And yet Israel is still there, unassured, riddled with doubt and wondering will they ever make it into the land it's really a pathetic picture of God's people isn't it it is really a pathetic picture of how we are God gives us his word he inspires it he uh, He stamps upon it the very marks of his divinity, of its value, of its inspiration. He confirms it with plagues and miracles and all kinds of supernatural events. And yet we still cannot bring ourselves to believe what God has said. Until he puts the words of promise on the lips of a Canaanite, social outcast, prostitute, who engaged in lies and deception and treason. You know, I can't help when I think about that. I can't help but think of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men because it seems that God has done something foolish. He has stooped so low to Israel to to confirm to them his promises. And it says God should have just chastened them and disciplined them. But God says, no. I'm going to send two spies to the house of a prostitute who's going to believe my promises, though she's never had a relationship with me before. Though she's never read my word. Though she's never seen my mighty works. And I'm going to humble these stiff-necked, hard-hearted, doubting people through the testimony of this little old lady named Rahab. People of God, I, I think this says a lot about how we are often. Instead of being bold and courageous as God's word commands us, Instead of heartily embracing God's word with its promises that have been certified over and over again, how often are we like Israel? 
riddled with doubt, full of questions, one minute uh, seeming to be on fire and embracing and believing the promises and sacrificing and going all out for them. And the next minute, where are we? Weak and pathetic and doubting and shifting and driven here and there and wondering whether God's promises can actually be counted on. I believe what, what happens here is God confirms his word by this really what seems to us to be a foolish way of doing it. And yet it confirms the hearts of God's people powerfully because they go back and they say, Surely! I don't know what it is about God's word you were doubting this morning. But I believe the admonition of this passage is the same to you, surely. If you're struggling with a command of God's word this morning because you don't like it, because uh, your heart is set on doing the opposite, because you believe that if you could engage in the particular activity that God has commanded, and you think it, it, would, it would satisfy you, it would meet your needs, and, and yet you are struggling and on offense this morning because you want to do what's right, because you know you should, but on the other hand, you want to do what God has forbidden. God says, stop doubting and believe. If you are wrestling with providence this morning, and you are believing that the providence is 100% under God's control, He put the problem in your life just as He had sovereignly determined from eternity past, but yet you can't accept it, because it's hard. God's Word calls upon you to stop doubting and believe. If there are promises of God's word that you find just plain hard to accept. For instance, that God can forgive you of all of your sins in spite of all the terrible things you've done. And not make you pay for them at all. Because he's paid for them with the precious blood of Jesus. The, the, the admonition of this text is you to say with the spies, surely. Surely. The Lord has given the land into our hands. Surely the Lord has commanded. Surely the Lord has exercised his problems. Surely the Lord's promises are certifiable and trustworthy. Rahab's profession is designed, first of all, to confirm Israel in the promises of God. Second of all, look at the rest of her profession here. It is, it is utterly marvelous. Uh, she has a full-blown uh, orthodox, monotheistic confession of God in verse 11. She says at the very last part of verse 11, For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Look at the basis of that, first of all. It, it, the basis of that begins actually in verse 9. Uh, when, when she says, The terror of you all has fallen on us, that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. Well, why did they melt away? Why did they become uh, overwhelmed? Well, it's because of the psychological operations of warfare that God had been engaging in for, for now several years. First of all, verse 10, she says, the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. Very interesting there. She used the word dries up. It's the same one that's used over in Exodus where it talks about the actual Red Sea cross. She has heard of exactly what God did. Not that he delivered, not simply that he delivered them from Egypt. Not simply that they went through the Red Sea, but they went through the Red Sea on dry land. 
Then, as I already pointed out, she's heard about the destruction of the Amorite kings according to the provisions of harem warfare, and that melted their hearts. So then now in verse 11, she comes back to what she was saying. She said, when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Now the next word is for. What's she saying? He's saying the basis of her profession of faith in God is in the facts of redemption. It's based upon the redemptive acts of God in redeeming his people. No one has proclaimed them to her. She has not read about them in a book. She's only heard the testimony of people who have reported it. And it's from those facts, and upon the basis of those facts here, she renounces her paganism, and she says, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and earth beneath. It's very interesting how she says that there. She says he's not just God in heaven. He's not just God on earth. He's God in heaven and earth and the whole world. Now, that is utterly remarkable, because paganism did never confess monotheism. Pagans were polytheists, and in her own religious system, there was this conception that there were certain gods who were assigned certain portions of the world, and that is where they ruled, and they had their strengths in those particular compartments, yet there were other gods just as powerful in other compartments that they constantly battled and dueled with. There was no God of heaven and earth. There was a God who was in heaven. There was a God who was in earth. There was a God who was in the river. There was a God who was in the mountains. There was a God who was in the air. There were gods everywhere. Never find pagans confessing the Lord. He is God in heaven and earth. This is a confession of monotheism. This is exactly the confession that God had commanded Israel to make. It's fascinating here. The words are almost verbatim in the Hebrew with Deuteronomy 4.39 where God commands Israel to say, The Lord, He is God in heaven above, on earth below, and there is no other. In other words, she is making the profession of an Israelite now. Which answers why it was okay for her to lie, to engage in deception and treason, because she's become an Israelite. And she's making her public profession of faith to the elders. A remarkable claim from a very unexpected source. It's because of the acts of God persuaded her that he was God. And and as you look through scripture, you begin to see that's exactly what they're designed to do. How many times do you read in Exodus where God will say to Moses or to the people of Israel, I'm going to, to, I'm going to pour out these plagues. I'm going to perform these miracles so that the Egyptians will believe. Uh, Romans 9.17, Paul's arguing about election, but he brings up this verse from Exodus 9.16 where God says to, to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. What's so fascinating about that is while God was raising up Pharaoh, while God was trouncing and defeating Pharaoh, there was a prostitute in Canaan, who was believing in God and his purposes because of what God had done in defeating Pharaoh. 
You never know, people of God, whose heart God is working in. You never know. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They are far above us, says the Lord. But when God acts as he does, he does it for the purpose of the proclamation of his name and for his own glory. So that the earth will confess him. And what you see here in Joshua 2 is that coming to fulfillment. As we move our way to the end of our message this morning, I have simply a couple of applications from our passage. And the first one is the most exciting one. And that is that God saves unexpected people and confers upon them unexpected privileges. You know, I absolutely love to hear people talk about their conversion experiences. And what I really like to hear, not because it's better, because everybody who gets saved is equally good, okay? But what I'm saying is, isn't it marvelous when you hear somebody say, oh, you'd never believed if you'd seen me a year ago that I would be a Christian. You'd never believe it. What does that person say? That person is saying that, that if it weren't for the sovereignty of God's grace and salvation, there's absolutely no way you could undo the train wreck of their life. That's what happened to Rahab. If you would have sat down with her just just before this whole episode, uh, you wouldn't have seen somebody who would have done these things. It was because God broke into her life through the power of his Holy Spirit, and he impressed upon her his mighty redemptive acts, and he sovereignly saved her. And she's sitting before these spies, and she's saying, you would never have believed six months ago that I would be a, a, a Jewish Israelite. Reminds me that Christianity is not religion. It's not something that you sit down in cold blood and decide to study and then join up with the group after you've decided intellectually that it's the right thing to do. It's not Buddhism. It's not Islam. It's not a world religion. It, it, it's, it's supernatural. It's God taking his elect and reaching down into their heart and grabbing hold of that old dead heart and ripping it out and then putting it into it. But what the word of God says, a heart of flesh. It's not religion. It's based upon the supernatural works of God and God works in the most unexpected people. You don't believe that, just read through the Bible. There's a laundry list of bad people who are in the church. And I love to read about that because it's very encouraging to me. There's a lot of bad people that God brought into the church. He saves unexpected people and he gives them unexpected privileges. Just listen to this. You could turn there if you want, but Ruth 4.21 says, And to Salman, 
was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. And you say, Pastor John, what in the world are you talking about? Big deal. Solomon begot Boaz, and Boaz, Obed, Obed, Jesse, and Jesse, David. Well, for one thing, you learn something about the ancestry of David, whether you want to know that this morning, or you got that uh, information. But, but you go to Matthew 1.5, and here's what you read. Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. And you know the rest of the story. Rahab, the pagan prostitute, Canaanite, social outcast, liar, deceiver, uh, committer of treason, is the grandmother of David. But then read the rest of the passage and you find out that she's the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. You see what I mean? God saves unexpected people and provides them with unexpected privileges. You think that's fine if we leave people like Rahab into the church. When they get to heaven, they can scrub our toilets. That's not how God works. When, when he brings people into the kingdom of God, the word of God says he exalts them and seats them in the heavenly places in Christ to partake of every spiritual blessing. No second-class citizenship. Rahab is made grandmother to David and great-great-grandmother to our Savior, Jesus Christ, a pagan prostitute from Jericho. By the way, just to confirm that God does unexpected things by working in unexpected people and granting them unexpected privileges, you just read the rest of Matthew chapter 1, and there are four women mentioned there, besides Mary. All four women had a brush with sexual immorality. Tamar dressed up like a prostitute to have sex with her father-in-law. Ruth got busy with Boaz, if you read Ruth. Bathsheba committed adultery with David. And you already know the story of Rahab. You see the kind of unsavory characters God brings into his church? Unexpected people. Unexpected privileges. I'm not saying this morning the moral of the story is go live like the world and have a powerful conversion experience. No. I'm just saying that this passage proclaims the grace of God and reminds us this morning that the only way into the kingdom of God and the only way to flee from the destruction that's going to come upon the Canaanites, going to come upon the world at the end of the age, is to find yourself in Jesus Christ. And the way you do that is by grace. The second thing about this passage by way of application this morning is that works flow from faith. Works flow from true faith. You know, Rahab is brought up in Hebrews 11 and her faith is commended. She is brought up in James 2.25 where James says, In the same way was not Rahab the heart it also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them away another way. Well, James here is not saying there's another way to justification besides faith alone. James is saying that her justification was demonstrated by the things that she did. Her justification was demonstrated and commended by her deception and her lie and her sending the soldiers down the wall the opposite direction of the police dogs. That's what he's saying. 
it's her works, though, that, that, that James is pulling up out of this passage. He's saying, this is what justified people do. They respond in gratitude and obey God. That's what he's saying. Saved people show that they have a real faith by a life of obedience. We know the obedience of Rahab here positively. It is the taking of the spies in, covering them over with flax and hiding them and lying and committing treason to protect them. But there's an obvious negative work here as well. And that is that Rahab left her life of sin. As I said, uh, the language is riddled with sexual innuendo, but as you read it in the grammar of the original, there are indicators that Rahab kept herself pure. In other words, it's reporting on what Rahab was before she met Jesus. You see, when she was justified and she was impressed with the mighty acts of God, she left her life of sin. She realized that if there was a God, it was God of heaven above and earth beneath, and sexual immorality is out of the picture. She realized that there is a divine standard. If this God is sovereign, he must be holy, and he must be righteous, and the only way to please him is depart from a life of sin and walk in obedience and gratitude. And she realized that sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, was a non-negotiable. You know, we need to hear that this morning. And this is not one of those admonitions where we look at our neighbor and pinch them and say, you need to hear this message too. Well, this is a good message for the young people kind of a thing. It's a good message for us all. We live in a culture that is awash in sex. It glorifies sex. It sells sex. It flaunts sex. It sells sex. It, it, I mean, sex is everything in our culture. It's the new religion of our culture. And so we're all warned as we read this, as we look at our sister Ahab who heard that there was a God in heaven above who dries up things like Red Sea so people walk across it on dry ground. We need to realize, as she did, that God has a non-negotiable standard. Oh, it's a tough standard because our hearts are bent in a wrong direction. So it's to all of us. The admonition of the passage is not just that we embrace Jesus by faith. But as we embrace Jesus by faith, we depart our life of sin. That's what Rahab did. She's commended for it in the Word of God in James 2.25, and that's God's admonition to you as we close. That's God's admonition to you as we close. That we depart from sin out of the fear of the Lord and aim to walk in his ways with a grateful heart. God help us to do that today. Let's pray.